Hi, this is Yolanda, and I'm sharing with you from the words of the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on page um, 200 and the um, chapter heading, we're partway through, um, we're partway through chapter um, 23. Uh, which is entitled Some Public Contacts and the um, the topic heading is The Bishopric Reorganised. Enjoy. Thank you for joining me. Excuse me if I um, trip over my words. After giving much thought to the matter of his successor and laying the problem before the Master in prayer, in accordance with the light received, I placed the name of George A. Blakesley before the conference as Bishop of the Church. He was sustained in the office and his choice of Elijah Banter and Edmund L. Kelly as councillors was approved. Following this action, the reorganised bishopric then took immediate and active oversight of the financial affairs of the Church. The conference, by vote, authorised the bishop to repair the Kirtland Temple, and I have reason to believe that it was the probability of this action occurring at this conference which influenced Bishop Rogers in resigning. Be that as it may, the subsequent history which grew out of the action warrants the conclusion that it was the proper thing to be done at the time. Two important meetings were held in the Opera House, owned by Mr Wagner, a businessman of the city who very generously offered it by for our use. Elder Zenas H. Gurley occupied the first evening and the meeting was well attended. It was unfortunate for all concerned that he had become dissatisfied in some way, either with his position or occupation as a member of the Quorum of Twelve, or with the views held by some of his brethren regarding church organisation and procedure. This disaffection showed in his discourse and had the effect of sadly crippling his efficiency as a speaker. Upon this, oca upon this occasion, he seemed rather unduly elated at having so large an audience, and it appeared to many of us that he went to his task relying more upon his own powers than upon the master whom we tried to serve. A result was that many were very seriously disturbed and others disgusted. I confess to a feeling of sadness and depression, for I knew Elder Gurley to be a very able man. Announcement was made that I would be the speaker on the following evening. Dr. Malenin was heard to ask, Why does not the Prophet's son preach on the subject of the Book of Mormon? He has preached here several times, but not once has he, present, has he presented the book. Is he afraid to attempt to discuss the subject? The next evening, when the hour of meeting came, I took a position on the stand opposite to that which had been occupied by Elder Gurley the night before, purposefully wishing to divert the minds of the audience from him and his rather sorry address. For I expected that both speakers and their subjects would be critically compared by those who attended both evenings. Following the lead which had been given me in the query voiced by Elder McLellan, 
I took the Book of Mormon and its place in our faith as a subject of my discourse. With a companion or two, he sat almost immediately in front of me and close enough to both see and hear very well, whatever my audience as a whole may have thought about it. There were many present who believed as I did, viz. that I was favoured by the presence of an excellent spirit of light and intelligence in the sermon. To use a familiar phrase among our elders, I had very great liberty and I was able to present, to present the different phases of my discussion with frank statements, clearly outlined and well substantiated by argument. After dismissal, as I came down the aisle, Dr. Malillin offered me his hand and as I shook it, I said, Doctor, you see that the son of the prophet is not afraid to preach about the Book of Mormon. Looking at me, a moment or two, with visible emotion, the tears rising in his eyes, he said, I perceive that you are not the only re you are not only ready to talk upon the subject, but that you can talk about it exceedingly well. The compliment pleased me, for from the humility and emotion which occupied it, which accompanied it, I'm sorry for tripping over my words, I felt it was sincere and that there was a perception of truth and warmth of affection for the restored gospel lingering in the heart and mind of, the, of that veteran, however far he may have retarded his development by keeping himself aloof from the efforts being made to rehabilitate and rebuild the scattered church forces. Next heading, last fall conference. The church had early established a custom of holding conferences in the spring and fall, the first one usually in Illinois and the later one in western Iowa, as I have mentioned. The personnel of these two meetings varied largely, for, with the exception of some of the general officers of the church, few of the members were so situated as to be able to attend both. It became apparent that it would be wise to abandon the full conference as such, confine the general church business to the April meetings and regard the later ones more in the light of reunions with social and missionary activities. The last full conference held for business was the one of 1882. It was held in Lamoni, in a grove on the lot north of the new Herald office. I think there was considered at this conference the matter of preparing a memorial to be presented to the Secretary of State, acquainting him and his department with the fact that a certain letter of his predecessor, Honourable William M. Evarts, should not be construed to include the work and members of the reorganisation. In this letter, Mr. Evarts had requested the governments of continental Europe and Great Britain to take some steps to prevent the emigration from their shores to America of persons proselyted by American missionaries who come here intending to enter into the practice of polygamy under the teachings of the Church in Utah. Since the administration had thus protested against the immigration of such persons, deeming them undesirable citizens, the brethren feared this letter of the former secretary addressed to foreign governments 
might be construed as applying to the missionary efforts of the reorganisation and the immigration of those who, obeying our message abroad, wish to come to the United States and sincerely intend, intended to obey its laws, even though they were believers, believers in the doctrines of the new and to some strange church. Sorry, that was brackets, bracket, and to some strange bracket, church founded in 1830. It was decided that in company with Brethren Gurley and Blakesley, tripping over my words again, I'm sorry. It was decided that in company with Brethren Gurley and Blakesley, I should visit Washington, secure an interview with the Secretary of State, F.T. Freeling. Husin, um, I can't say that, sorry, <laughs> and present a memorial setting forth the facts and requesting such a modification or interpretation of the letter mentioned as would protect our organisation and effectively prevent our missionaries from being confused with those sent out from Utah. Elder Zenos H. Gurley, Jr. was at that time in charge of the Eastern Mission and was making an estimable effort at Philadelphia. He was acquainted with members of Congress from Iowa and Elder Blakesley was acquainted with Senator Burroughs of Michigan. It was thought that through these acquaintances a favourable audience with Secretary Frelinghusen might be secured. Soon after conference I went to Hallan. Holland, Shelby County, Iowa, where a church was to be dedicated. This strong, healthy branch was presided over by that veteran of the gospel, Elder Jonas W. Charburn, who, with his family, had settled there at the breakup in Nauvoo. He had been largely instrumental in sounding a warning to many saints who were heading for the west and in enlightening them concerning the true state of affairs out there. Many of these were quite willing to renew their allegiance when the message of the reorganisation was brought by Brethren, Briggs, Blair and others to this Western Territory and the branch of Holland contained quite a number of these older members as well as newer converts. The church building was dedicated on February the 18th, 1883. The meeting was attended by some other men of note in our midst, whose presence added weight and value to the gathering. Next heading to the east. After this de dedication at Holland, I returned to Council Bluffs, where I procured some clothing suitable for the trip to Washington. I then started for the east, Brother Blakesley joining me at Galleon on February the 21st, 1883. We stopped at Philadelphia en route where some meetings were held and we met a number of saints. I remember among them Sister Heck, a widow who, with her sons and members, formed a fir firm of fine shoemakers and enjoyed a splendid patronage among the elite of the city. In company with Elder Gurley, we visited points of interest in Philadelphia, being escorted about by Brother Joseph Stewart, 
For several years, a resident there, Elder Gurley, had been doing excellent work in that locality, had built up a fine congregation, conducted well-attended meetings in a well-appointed hall, and appeared to have won the esteem of all. Reaching Washington on the 28th, Elder Gurley and I took rooms at the National Hotel, Elder Blakesley locating elsewhere. Our good spirits were dampened, however, by finding a disturbing telegram from Brethren Banter and John Scott of Lamoni, sent in care of Representative Hepburn of Iowa, informing us that Lawrence Conover, Secretary of the Board of Publication, had left the Herald office for parts unknown, taking with him all the available funds to in the safe. This news required the immediate return of Brother Blakesley to Lamoni, that he might assist Brother Blair in the emergencies which had fallen upon our printing departure. Through this unfortunate loss and betrayal of interests, his departure left Brother Gurley and me to carry through the mission to which we had been assigned, although Brother Blakesley had already gotten in touch with his friend, Senator Burroughs, whose interest he had enlisted in our affairs. I found Elder Gurley ready and anxious to accomplish the object for which we had come. Though his acquaintance with them we secured... Sorry, I'll start again. Through his acquaintance with them, we secured interviews with Senator... Allison and Congressman Hepburn, who received us kindly and listened to our story with interest. We set to work to prepare the memorial by which we hope to bring our appeal to the attention of the Secretary of State. As we progressed, I found the task was not only serious and arduous, but difficult as well. Elder Gurley was a brilliant man, an eloquent speaker in the pulpit, intelligent and energetic in his quorum work, and always strongly confident of accomplishing that which he undertook to do. In our several consultations, which occupied several days, we discussed the subject matter and construction, and finally made a rough draft of what we deemed suitable. This he put into typewritten form while I attended to some necessary correspondence with the brethren at Lamoni and responded to some local calls. When we met to consider the finished document, I discovered that in his anxiety to give it brilliantly and eloquence, he had interjected a number of what I called bad or unwise adjectives in referring to the church in Utah and its doctrine, doctrines. I objected to this for the reason that it displayed an animus that in the opinion of people disposed to be fair-minded would prove injurious to our cause and might prevent us from securing the desired attention and goodwill of the secretary. Our discussion grew a bit warm and finally took some such shape 
that I had to state to Gurley that I would not sign the document in that form and that if he insisted upon retaining those sentences to which I objected, I would have to permit him to sign it alone and present it alone. I said in that case, I would say nothing about it thereafter except as the matter might be raised in the coming conference, conference to which we must necessarily report as a committee. This stand of mine resulted in the modifications I desired. Next heading, Secretary, and that name that I can't sound out, Frere Ling Hu-sen. Frere Ling Hu-sen. Hmm, okay. During these days, we had been in almost daily contact with Mr Hepburn and had had short interviews with Senators Burroughs and Allison. I was not acquainted with matters of state etiquette, but knew that there was more or less difficulty in securing interviews with such important officials as members of the cabinet. Finally, however, Brother Gurley and I met Messrs Allison and Hepburn in the lobby of the secretary's office where were ushered into Mr Freling Hussein's presence and they were introduced by Mr Allison who gave us a very kind, courteous and warm commendation telling the secretary he had known us for several years that we were good citizens and with a sparkle in his eye, good republicans. I had formed no previous conception of what kind of man we would meet. It had been agreed between us that I was to present the memorial and Elder Gurley would present a copy of the Book of Mormon to which reference had been made in the document and each would make such speeches in the presentation as he might feel led to do. However, the moment we met Secretary Frey Ling Hussein whatever previous ideas I may have entertained concerning my actions or words were swept aside for I recognised in him a most remarkable man who strongly impressed me with the thought that extended remarks in our interview would be both unnecessary and unwelcome. At his request we had taken chairs while Mr Allison concluded his statements as to who we were and what was our what our errand was. Then I arose very quietly and handed the documents we had prepared to the official, saying simply that it was a memorial in which the object we desired would be set forth. Elder Gurley then arose and began making a speech with a view of presenting the Book of Mormon. Not much to my surprise, for uh, I had caught the extreme business-like efficiency and dispatch which characterised the Honourable, but greatly to my regret, regret, the Secretary waved his hand abruptly towards Elder Gurley and said crisply, that will do, Mr Gurley, that will do. Mr Smith has said, said all that is necessary. He held out his hand for the book, adding that he would give the matter due consideration and would inform us when his conclusions were reached. The interview was at an end. I saw a flash of commendation in the eyes of Senator Allison, but I could not look at Elder Gurley, for I well realised what effect that curt treatment would have upon him. I had known him well for a number of years, and I felt that the cut, if we may call it that, 
was undeserved and somewhat ungenerous, though it might have been justified from the standpoint of the busy official. I had seen at once that speech-making would be useless, that the man before us was a self-poised one who recognised the dignity of his position and knew himself to be well qualified to fill his requir its requirements. Secretary Frilling Hewson was one of the most handsome men I ever met. Tall, strong, broad-shouldered, shouldered, of large frame and excellent proportions, with blue eyes and fair complexion, setting off the fine features under a broad and intellectual forehead. Truly a remarkable, striking personality. His integrity and ability had impressed themselves upon me, and I had said to myself, You need not fear to trust your cause in this man's hands. He will not proceed against you unjustly, nor will he allow himself to be swerved from his conception of duty by anything you may say to him. The document you presented, though somewhat voluminous, sets forth the facts clearly and will not be misunderstood by him. He will see the objects you have in view and is no doubt already somewhat informed upon the history of the church you represent. I felt quite content to leave our case in his care, for his apprehensions concerning it vanished at the first sight of his face, and his manner had made me feel as much at ease as was possible with a stranger, for I felt I understood his nature. He seemed to be, to me, he seemed to be a man who knew his fellow men, who would be just and honourable in the discharge of his duty as a public officer, stance and undeviating in his friendships, gallant in his fights against an enemy, and, in short, a man who could safely be trusted. I was conscious of a distinct glow of pleasure at meeting him, and felt grateful for the opportunity. My impression at this time was that Brother Gurley had missed his cue. My impression at this time, or at the time, was that Brother Gurley had missed his cue. If I may be allowed the expression, what he intended to say had been quickly perceived by the acute intelligence of the secretary and its method apprehended, and the gentleman doubtless felt that he preferred to hear nothing condemnatory about the one church nor eulogistic of the other, and so summarily declined to listen. We thank the secretary for granting the interview, Messrs Ellison and Hepburn, for their kind services in the matter, and retired from the room. These reflections take long in telling, but occupied only a few seconds in review. On our way back to the hotel, Elder Gurley and I were both silent. We had discharged the duty which had been assigned to us, secured the interview, and lodged our written cause with the proper authorities. Now we could only await the result as it should evolve in the common course of human events. The curt dismissal of Gurley's attempt at speech-making was not mentioned between them or later. The subject was too delicate for me to discuss, for I felt it was a serious snub. 
I know of no better word to express the American idea of that which was conveyed by such a wave of the hand and such words and tone and manner as the secretary had used toward him. When it had occurred, I thought how gladly I would have given a penny for thoughts if I could have been allowed a peep into the brain behind those blue eyes. As for my companion, I knew his self-love had been dealt a serious blow and could not doubt that he would be more, he was mortified to the quirk to the quick. He never referred to the occurrence in my presence or in correspondence with me or expressed curiosity over the difference in treatment which had been accorded us. In due time, I received a very courteous letter from Mr. Frillinghusen to the effect that, while he recognised that Mr. Evart's circular letter to foreign powers was directed against those persons who emigrated to this country for the purpose of joining polygamous communities and did not apply to law-abiding immigrants who are always secure from interference. It was outside the province of his department or of the government to make distinctions between religious factions or by sanction or endorsement favour any specific form of belief. Elder Gurley had been untiring in working upon the task we undertook, and without his help I would have been seriously handicapped. It was with a great deal of regret I had told him I could not conscientiously sign the document as he had prepared it. It has long since been a matter of history, and those who read may, who read may judge as to whether or not such convictions were of sufficient value to justify me in, in refusing. It may be proper for me to here record that I have had that I had had a presentiment which almost amounted to conviction that in time of great pressure Elder Gurley would fail to answer the confidence which I was willing to place in him. This presentiment had from the first of my intercourse with him been frequently in mind even as I recognised him to be generous, warm-hearted, friendly and conversational, one who thought not an advanced scholar, one who, though not an advanced scholar, was possessed of an instructive knowledge of human affairs and considerable native intelligence. With it all, he was possessed of rather too much ego to keep his balance under all conditions. One forenoon, after our morning's work was done, we did some visiting and then went over to the principal fashionable hotel of the city. There in the lobby we met Colonel Campbell of Utah, then contesting a seat in Congress with George Q. Cannon. In the presence of Elder Cannon, Elders Gurley and E. L. Kelly had met the committee appointed to examine into the details of this contest, feeling it to be a duty to acquaint its personnel with facts which would prevent them from including in their findings statements which would be disparaging to us as a church. Whether or not our brethren had met Colonel Campbell before, I do not know, but upon this occasion of our meeting, 
him in the hotel, we had a little conversation with him. Then as it was approaching the noon hour, we were about to separate for lunch. We started to walk across the rotunda when the colonel very kindly invited us to step around to the bar with him and take a glass of wine. I at once declined, saying, please excuse me, I'm not in the habit of indulging. I went back, sat down in a chair and waited for them to return. I saw no bar, it was possibly further down the hall and possibly screened, of that I cannot say. I did not know what effect my refusal to drink would have upon the colonel, but to the but I only followed my usual custom. Up to that time, and I may add, up to the present time, I had always exercised my right of personal liberty by refraining from drinking at a bar or in a saloon. I do not know that elder girly drank with the colonel, but when they returned, he seemed to smile and twinkle as though he had tasted something good and was feeling the touch of good fellowship which attended. I found no fault with the Colonel or with Brother Gurley. Colonel Campbell was a Western man and was doubtless accustomed to the habit, so I let it go at that time. The next head, heading, the Temperance Movement. I had always been identified with the Temperance Movement from my boyhood up, and as a lecturer had achieved some reputation. About the time of my removal to Lamoni, a campaign against the liquor traffic was begun and I renewed my allegiance to this work. In the endeavour to secure legislative enactment curtailing the purchase and sale of intoxicants, I made a number of speeches in different parts of the county and state. On one occasion, going as far as the town of Washington, northeast of Des Moines, one result of these efforts was that at a temperance convention held in Decatur County, I was appointed on a delegation to a mass rally at Des Moines with four others, W.H. Robb, E.A. Pittman, um, Bullock and Not. I attended this rally and as chairman of the delegation was given a place upon the platform. There had been an effort made in 1882 to get the people of Iowa to express by vote their desire to prohibit the traffic in liquor. This effort had resulted in a large majority declaring in favour of such prohibited inaction, enactment. The matter was appealed to the Supreme Court of the state and with the result that the vote was declared inoperative such decision being made upon the technical point that in the transmission between the houses of legislature an error was made in copying the document. There had been an effort made in 1882 to get the people of Iowa to express by vote their desire to prohibit the traffic in liquor. This effort had resulted in a large majority declaring in favour of such prohibitive enactment. <clears throat> Apologies if I am um, already read this, um, I got interrupted while reading, but um, I hope that you forgive me. The matter was appealed to the Supreme Court of the state, with the result that the vote was declared inoperative such decision being made upon the technical point that in the transmission between the houses of legislature, legislature 
legislator. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm tripping over my tongue again. An error was made in copying the document. This mass meeting at Des Moines was held for the purpose of expressing the indignation of the people over the manner in which their, their will had been set aside and to protest the action of the court. This was done by the adoption of a proper and spirited resolution. At this meeting held February the 7th, I became acquainted with a number of active temperance workers of our Iowa, among whom I remember General James B. Weaver and Mrs. Foster, who addressed the assembly. I recall a temperance meeting held in the courthouse in Lyon, county seat of Decatur County, where we had tried several times without success to get an op opening to present our church doctrines. The people seemed willing to hear me on the temperance question. However, even though they did not care to hear me discuss religious topics. One result of the temperance meetings at Lyon and elsewhere in the county was that a lecturer upon the other side of the question was brought into the locality. He was a Frenchman named M. de Laminte and came from some city in the middle portion of the state, Iowa City, I think. He was invited by the Democratic County Committee and asked to lecture against the adoption of the Prohibition Amendment to the Constitution. Upon learning of this step, a committee of Republicans asked me if I would be willing to meet the gentleman in debate and I replied that I was willing to meet any proper accredited persons upon that subject, any time and any place. So the Republicans approached the Democrats and asked them to agree to have their lecturer meet me in a public discussion of the question, such meeting to be arranged well in advance and widely advertised. I went to Lyon with Elijah Banta and to be ready, for the contemplated discussion, the committee met the lecturer upon his arrival and placed the proposition upon before him, but he promptly refused to accept the challenge. When asked his reasons, he simply stated, Mr. Smith is a strong man and has the best side of the question. From that rather inconsistent standpoint, he could not be moved and the debate did not materialise. Being rather late in the day to start the return trip home, Brother Banter and I decided to stay overnight there. To while away the evening, I went out to hear the lecture by the Frenchman delivered in a large hall adjacent to the hotel. The gentleman was a medium-sized, dark-featured man with dark hair and eyes, showing plainly his French extraction, though whether born in France or in the United States, I do not know. He had achieved considerable reputation as a public speaker and was considered qualified to lecture on the temperance question. Listening to him, however, I felt I, felt I should have been glad to meet him in discussion. Meanwhile, as I listened, Elder Banter and others busied themselves about the town. 
as I discover later. They started a report that there was to be a temperance meeting in the Methodist church. Soon I was called out of the hall and told by Brother Banter that I was wanted to meet some people at another place, not knowing what was in the wind. I went and as we neared the Methodist church, he confessed what had been done, that the Republican committee and some other citizens, Thomas Till, Ed Pittman, John Harvey, W.H. Rob, and had obtained permission for the use of the church, had sent out boys and young men calling a rally at that place, and all were earnestly desiring me to speak there. I was surprised and a little taken aback, for I had not come away with any such thought. However, there was the house full of people, and the opportunity presented seemed too good to be thrown away. So, yielding to the request, I delivered an impromptu discourse upon my side of the question. From the first, I had opposed taking the liquor traffic question into politics or making it an issue in the announced platform of either party. I believed that the remedy and cure for the evil lay more securely in the gradual education of the people up to the point where they would completely abandon the use of intoxicants as beverages than in trying to legislate it out of existence by by prohibiting its manufacture. The basis of my argument was that if its use as a beverage were discontinued, there would be a double demand for it, and therefore none would be manufactured for sale. I'm not quite sure if I read that right. It doesn't say double, it's just got double D-O. Anyway, let me carry on. I held that it was the duty of those who believed in sobriety to use every means in their power to bring about this educational process and that much blame could very properly be laid at the doors of the churches. For while their outward appearance, their outward face was against intoxicants, strong and influential bands of moderate drinkers within their pale nullified the professed declarations, thus virtually fostering and sustaining the traffic and manufacture of alcoholic beverages. The next heading, a temperance debate in Lamoni. This meeting at the Methodist Church prevented my hearing M. Delimiter to the close of his effort but it evidently resulted in adding materially to the laurels I had already won at a temperance lecturer as a temperance lecturer the house was filled to its utmost capacity and for the customary hour and a quarter my efforts were not only received courteously but were given the closest of attention Furthermore, it secured for me an invitation from the Women's Christian Temperance Union to again speak to the county seat, which I did upon at least two subsequent occasions. In the course of the campaign in 1882, Judge Furry, 
attended by William Brown, sheriff, and a rising young attorney named Cal Hoffman came down to Lamoni as an embassy to inform our citizens that it was their duty to vote against the proposed state amendment. Our large brick church in Lamoni had not been erected at that time, so the meeting was held in the little chapel we occupied on the north side of Main Street in the western edge of town. It would hold about as many people as any other room in the place. Our people turned out almost en masse to hear Judge Foray filling the building to overflowing with numbers standing outside and at the windows. Imagine my surprise when the learned judge, by some strange freak of mental caprice, if I cannot account for it upon any other hypothesis, chose to assume for the occasion the role of a preacher and instead of giving us a clear-cut, straightforward list of reasons why we as citizens of the state should cast our votes in such a manner as to allow the traffic in intoxicants to become legalised, he undertook a clerical dissertation upon what he called the fact that alcohol was a natural product found in almost all vegetation, that it formed a large part of all plant life, was therefore designed by the creator for the use of man and was needed to sustain and invigorate the human system. In arguing that free alcohol was found in all grains, grasses, many vegetables and a large number of plants, he made a singular point. Apparently, the pivotal text and mainstay of his argument is that whenever man munches a few kernels of corn, or a spoonful of wheat, he partakes of the alcohol concealed in those grains. <clears throat> and this element, assimilated in the circulation, forms the stimulating power of food and is therefore necessary to health and strength. He stated that if man is denied the, this use of alcohol, one purpose of the creator will be defeated. And ended that to secure this needed stimulant, in that case man would have to resort to the use of different drugs through which, as he might discover, quicker effect could be obtained. Why, he said, before I came down here, I myself took three grains of Nox vomica in order to make my right arm strong in this fight against this amendment. All of you, to a greater or lesser extent, are using alcohol in some form or other every day. While I was surprised at the turn his argument had taken, I was amused, for they seemed so palpably fallacious. And he quit speaking there. As he quit speaking, there was a call for me. Asa Cochran, who had the meeting in charge, stated that there was no disposition on our part to be discourteous, but asked if there would be any objection to my replying to the judge. Upon being told there was none, he invited me to the stand, where I opened my brief review by stating that I was surprised that the speaker had assumed the pose of a man of the cloth entreating his subject, and in that role had attempted to analyse the needs of God's creatures and God's processes in supplying those needs, adding, it is not the first time in the history of the world that the devil has turned preacher. 
This sally, given and received in good nature, created a small ripple of laughter, and I then replied to the man part of the argument which had been presented. I examined the central thought that alcohol was to be found in a large portion of the earth's vegetation, and that when we ate of the product of the soil, we were partaken of alcohol. The judge says that the horse and ox, the sheep and the other animals feeding upon grasses all partake of alcohol and that man needs it as they do and should have it in his system. But may I ask if you have ever seen colts and calves, cows and horses who feed upon pasture, lard, lands and corn and pumpkins grow intoxicated from their indulgences therein? Are the frolics and friskings of young animals the result of alcohol upon the brain? In plain language, did any of you ever see any animal, human or otherwise, drunk from alcohol placed <coughs> where and used in the manner the Almighty designed for it? The judge told you he had taken three grains of nux vomica before coming here in order to strengthen his arm for the fight against the amendment. I have done even better than that, for I have strengthened myself by taking alcohol as God gave it to mankind, having eaten cornbread for supper. And my speech was done. The effect was electrical. The audience broke into a storm of approval, laughter and hand clapping, and the meeting was dismissed with Mr. Hoffman and Mr. Brown clamouring to be heard. It is possible that this meeting in Lamona was reported in Lyon and formed the basis of Mr. Delamanta's refusal to meet me in discussion because I was a strong man. I do not... I do know that the opposition left our corner of the county alone thereafter, figuring perhaps that we were too hard-headed a lot to be coaxed into voting for the sale of liquors. I recall that as we went out from that meeting, Sister Barr said, Brother Joseph, I did not know it was possible for you to be so sarcastic. It was not my intention to be rudely sarcastic to the judge, but as he had turned preacher, I turned into a plain everyday citizen and tried to consider the subject from a plain common sense standpoint. It is possible that in thus handling his arguments, I did give way to a spirit of quasi-fun or logical nonsense, but it apparently proved quite effective. I'm going to leave it there and um, start the... Um, the remaining in the next episode thank you for listening sorry about tripping over my words thank you